The legal foundation of the state of Israel is what is known as the Balfour Declaration. A man in the government of Britain named Balfour wrote a paper and promised the Jews a national home. The national home he promised them was an area which Britain was colonizing, Palestine. We know who our enemy is and we know that they are out to get us. Israelis have to take over and uh, they have to kick them uh, kick them away. You can't deal with these people, there's no need to try, there's no need to talk to them. I would carpet bomb them. You mean all Arabs or Gaza or...? I don't, I don't trust them. You can't trust them. The Zionism is certainly not a liberation movement because it never fought against any imperialism. As a matter of fact, today, Zionism is the baby, child, and infant protector of imperialism in the Middle East. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. We identify with the PLO because just like our sons, they are fighting for the right of self-determination. We do not mean that uh, Israel has the right to retain the territories they conquered from the Arab world. Those territories should be returned to the Arab people. Free, free! Free, free! Free, free! From the river to the sea! From the river to the sea! You know why we're here. On episode 23 of Hot Pocket, we're talking about Israel and Palestine. This is Saad. This is Sherior. We have an unreleased pilot episode. The very first Hot Pocket episode that was ever recorded was actually about Palestine and Israel. Because that took place, that recording took place in May, April, when everything blew up. Yeah. When everybody heard about what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah. And everybody was posting. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to learn. That's when I wrote. A giant article about it. Yeah, great article. Share. Uh, <laughs> why didn't we put that one out? <laughs> Our production value was not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the reason why we didn't re- release that is because we were literally sharing a mic. Yeah, we had one mic. We were passing it between us. And so we realized we it can't sounds terrible. Out. So we're here now. I think we're better broadcasters. Absolutely. We're more equipped. Yep. And we need to be because this is a topic of grave importance. Mm-hmm. It's not trending anymore. No. It's not on the height of everybody's mind. Mm-mm. Politicians and newscasters and celebrities aren't forced to talk about it in order to stay culturally relevant. But we still think it's incredibly important. And so the way this is going to go, it's going to be a bit of a historical lesson. Yeah. We're going to first look at Zionism. We want to explore what Zionism is. What that means. Yeah, because that essentially boils down. that That's the most important thing we want to talk about here, right? The yeah. state of Israel yeah. and its conception from Zionism. And we'll go into, you know, the definition of Zionism, where it began, the father of Zionism, mm-hmm. and kind of how the ball started rolling from there. And then from there, we'll give a general timeline for what has happened in Israel and Palestine since, we'll say, early 20th century. Yeah. This is not exhaustive. 
No. It, I mean, there's no way we in like, we're going to try to wrap this up in under an hour. We'll this see a, where we go. That's a very complex issue. Right. With tons of <laughs> decades of history. Right. So it, this is going to be watered down, mm. but we're going to make sure that if you're somebody who doesn't have all the vocabulary yeah. and all the language, you'll understand what we're talking about. You will about. come away with extremely important and potent talking points mm-hmm. and parts of history that have either well not directly like they have directly shaped this situation right from the conception from the middle and most importantly what recently just happened right so and we'll specifically focus on the revolts in the 1936 and 1939 and then we'll pick back up from there give a brief overview and we'll talk about after the fact some modern day interpretations of the quote-unquote conflict and how we can debunk certain narratives and talking points around that yeah let's get started sit tight people (laughs) yeah put on your thinking caps this is a (laughs) this is a doozy we're starting with ye old theodore herzl who is he he is credited as the father of modern day zionism Mm -hmm. austro-hungarian jew and he wrote a incredibly important text called in, in his language, Der Judenstadt, which is the Jewish question. And he's so important to Zionism that he is specifically referenced in Israel's Declaration of Independence from 1948. And I quote, In the year 5657, a.k.a. 1897, yeah. at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state, Theodore Herzl, the first Zionist Congress convened and proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to national rebirth in its own country. The basic premise of the Jewish question, what is this question? Hmm. So think of it this way. Anytime I say the word Jewish question, replace that with anti-Semitism. Yeah. That word, Jewish question, control F, delete, Yeah. anti-Semitism. Okay. Here's a flow of logic. Pay attention. One. Where there's no Jewish people, there's no Jewish question. Two, when Jews move there, the question appears. Three, therefore, where there's Jews, there's a Jewish question. Four, and this is when he's very explicit about it, therefore, anti-Semitism is inevitable. Yeah. Basically saying, wherever there's Jewish people, there's there's anti-Semitism. Yeah, there's anti-Semitism. And so that leaves a question for... Jewish people who are all over the world, like, well, no matter where we go, we're hated. Yeah. How do we solve? How do we solve anti-Semitism? That? We're a minority in every country. We're oppressed in every way possible. We're off, and then obviously, like, he, what he's saying is generally true. Yeah. Right. The Jews have been persecuted all across history. So, what do you do to solve that? You create a state for Jewish people only. Only. That is the principal goal of. Zionism. Yeah. And I quote, if Zionism were a ship, anti-Semitism is our propelling force. Hmm. And so the way he, and this is problematic, and if you listen to the clips and the quotes from the intro to this episode, the way, and those are all from Israeli citizens, Yeah, the way they talk about the world is that it's super hostile. Mm-hmm. The world is out, other people are just out to get the Jewish people. It's a fight for your life. Yeah. If you believe that, put aside whether it's right to believe that or not, right? If you earnestly believe that, if a group of people earnestly believes that, what are you not willing to do? It would be ludicrous to not make every possible maneuver to ensure your own survivability. Yeah. 
will attach this to a more modern interpretation, a very real. Let's take the theory to practice. Hmm. We're talking about a guy named Meir Kahan. He's an American-born Israeli, an Orthodox rabbi. He founded the Jewish Defense League. It is an anti-communist, Islamophobic, Arabophobic political mm. organization that was credibly linked to a number of terrorist attacks. And when I say terrorist, I mean... Credibly, yeah. Credibly, like people died... From bombs. From bombs. Yeah. And here's a quote from the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And by the way, the ADL does like give a lot of leeway towards shit with Israel. Mm-hmm. So for them to say, like, call him a terrorist, call him, like his ideology, terrorist ideology, it says how... It says really a lot about how shows you where, where his standing was and how far right. Right. I guess he was. Here's a quote. In Rabbi Kahan's gross distortion of the position of Jews in America, American Jews were living in a fiercely hostile society, facing much the same dangers as the Jews in Nazi Germany or those in Israel surrounded by 100 million Arab enemies. So for further context, <laughs> yeah, which for, at face value is like um, Jews living in America have it as bad as Jews living in Nazi the Germany. Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, come on. But that key, there's a key line there. American Jews were living in a fiercely hostile society. Again, this tracks perfectly with the lineage of what Theodore Herzl was saying and what those Israeli citizens were saying in the clips. For Zionists, anti-Semitism is just like, you can't escape it. Yeah. All you can do is just be strong enough to fight back against yeah. it. There is a sort of paranoia baked into it. Yeah. And if you do believe in that and you do buy into it, I they mean, do. most all of all the Zionists if you're, do. Definitely, if you're a Zionist, yeah. you do. It makes, like, from their perspective, it makes sense to create a state. Because yeah. a state is power. A state yeah. creates borders around you. Right. So, for further context on Kahan. Kahan was convicted for a conspiracy to bomb the Libyan embassy and for attempted kidnapping of a Soviet diplomat. He was so extreme and powerful of a figure. Because, again, like, he's not... Like, the ADL and other groups will try to act like he's an isolated incident, but the fact that he was able to gain so much traction in Israel speaks to, like, this is not a super unique yeah. worldview. So, Kahan founded the Kak, I don't know how to pronounce this, K-A-C-H, political party. Kahan won a seat in the Neset, the Knesset, which is Israel's legislative body. So, yeah. basically, imagine a guy so racist and bigoted won a seat in Senate. I mean, it's not really far. Well, it's not that far, but like, but he's actually how like forward he is about it and outspoken he is about I mean, it. He, his his organization was actually linked to it was a political party, a political party who did terrorist mm-hmm. activity. His party was so blatantly racist that they were banned from participating in the 1988 elections and they were placed on a terrorist watch list. Yeah, like he's saying, Israel was like, "Yo, you're so bad for our PR." That well, you gotta slow down. We gotta get ahead of you. Israel, let's repeat that. Mm-hmm. Israel was like, "Hey, you're really bad for our PR." <laughs> Come on. So here's the thing: Gahan fiercely advocated for Jewish theocracy. Theodore Herzl believed in some level of secularism. Mm-hmm. That maybe there should be a separation of religion and state. Gahan believed that non-Jews couldn't be citizens, like at all. Yeah. Maybe they would still have some legal rights. Yeah. And then Herzl would make some vague gestures to the idea that yeah maybe if they if like arabs or non-jews did certain things they could become citizens it doesn't matter like what the intention of herzl was yeah because if you do read through that like the der judenstadt that pamphlet is like 50 pages not crazy long 
you get the sense that like he's weirdly idealistic and optimistic about like oh no 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 like things will be like okay for other people but if your entire argument is predicated on the idea that everybody's out to kill your people right why would you not adopt the mindset that kahan has exactly i I think like that's a more natural and honest conclusion to zionism and then even with with herzl right that's Mm -hmm. all theory that never really when when it goes to actual practice Mm -hmm. it never ends up being what it is but kahan his theory was so far out well it was practice yeah it was i mean now it's still a, a I mean, they kind of did adopt that in modern day, right? Like yeah. what, what they've been doing. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. But I'm just saying that if the theory is that far out, like, and then you go into like actually practicing it, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that should let you know how far to the right he was and how yeah. deranged, honestly. He's deranged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Zionism is an imperial colonialist project predicated on ethnic cleansing. Oh, yeah. Because again, you believe everybody's out to kill you and you want to seize like a, a portion of land, you're going to believe that the people living there are trying to kill you. Why yeah. would you not want to kill them? Yeah. If you believe that should, you should do that. Mm-hmm. And so another section of his argument is about Palestine or Argentina. Because at one point... They were debating. They were debating if Israel should just be in Argentina. Yeah. Because there's a fairly substantial amount of Jews living in Latin America, especially after um, the 20th century. Right. But... Didn't happen and ended up being Palestine instead. Mm -hmm. They were literally looking for Mm -hmm. something that could naturally give them sustenance and provide for themselves because, you know, Argentina is very fertile soil down Mm -hmm. there. A state needs to be able to produce its own food to be able to stay afloat. So they were looking through. Herzl (laughs) is like thinking pragmatically in that sense because he recognized that if we're going to have a state, it should be able to self-sustain itself. If you're reliant on exports the entire time, that wouldn't be, that's not feasible. Yeah, not at all. And then also just something that's completely clear to everyone who's listening to this is that this guy's just picking and choosing like oh should we go here or should we go there with people who are already in oh, yeah. like places that are inhabited yeah. Yeah. so the very conception of this is colonialism yeah and keep he, that in mind and he does talk about that yeah. like he, he explicitly like gives ideas of like what we could do to like take the land for them or yeah. if like either we'll give them concessions but we'll get to all that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so one of the main quotes and this is like a more general issue Herzl says this about Palestine. Palestine is our ever-memorable historic home. Hmm. The very name of Palestine would attract our people with a force of marvelous potency. The idea being that at one point in time in history, and this is true, Jews were in the land of Palestine, what was called Canaan at that point. Okay, I don't give a shit. So were Muslims. So were Muslims. Christians. So were Christians. So are... There are... There were other minority religions The idea that at some point... A group of people were in some geographic region now means that anybody claiming that identity has a inalienable and natural right to that land, yeah. regardless of who's there, is fucking insane. Yeah. The Arab world ruled Spain for four or five hundred years. Yeah. And it, that, that would be just as crazy as some Saudis being like, oh, by the way, we were there. We ruled. We had an empire there. We're about to go take over now yeah. and commit genocide. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why it goes over people's head. Like, it, this is a tit for tat if you just look at how, if you compare yeah. it to other things. People, it's clear. But when it comes to this, especially in America, there's always like, oh, well, this is a well, complicated issue. They have a, they have a yeah, to this, it. This, it's like, yo, what? You're, you're talking about migration. Yeah. Migration has been a thing since forever. Yeah. Groups, different groups and cultures have moved across different parts of the world constantly. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's right. There's a key quote from his text that gives insight into like how 
imperialism, colonialism are going to play a role. Yeah. The movements will not only be inaugurated with absolute conformity to law, but it cannot even be carried out without the friendly cooperation of interested governments who would derive considerable benefits from it. The shorthand ah. looking way of looking at that is, it's going to be really fucking hard for Jews to create a, a physical state, especially if we got taken from people. Unless we have some help. We get some help from some superpowers. Yeah. So here's a way to make it really obvious and germane for somebody living in America right now. Joe Biden, who we clipped earlier in this episode in the beginning, literally said, if there were not an Israel, we would invent an Israel. Yeah. Because it is so key to America's Middle Eastern interests. By interests, they mean foothold. It, it is a, a strong arm for America. Yeah. When the U.S. sends buckets of cash to Israel, Israel then buys American weapons. This is basically a transfer of wealth from your pocket to weapon manufacturer stock value. Israel is also where surveillance technology like facial recognition technology are often developed and improved and then sold all across the world to bloat the surveillance state. Mm -hmm. It's why Silicon Valley is not really going to say anything negative about Israel because so much of the technology and funding crisscrosses with that of Israel. Mm -hmm. Palestinians are essentially a test subject for tech and for surveillance. And this is all done with the approval of the United States because... There is money to be gained from that, and there's geopolitical interest to be gained from that. I want to hit on a brief, well, brief is a very generous term, <laughs> a timeline of Israel and Palestine from like late 19th century going forward and we'll make one pit stop to talk about the on the ground conditions the the class conditions of israel and palestine yeah we'll mark that point specifically now this is i'm taking all this from an article i already wrote right but so much of the information i got came from other texts of course and check the link in the the episode bio for all the information that i pulled because yeah. obviously so much great work has been done by other people. Yeah. And we, I'm like yeah, a dipshit. So I definitely pulled a lot from other folks who have, you know, done a lot more research into this. And uh, honestly, Saad did all the research. I'm just here reading it. He's just looking cute. <laughs> I'm the eye candy for this. <laughs> all right. 1517. The Ottoman Empire conquers the greater Syria region, which includes modern-day Palestine. Yeah. And that was previously known as the Mamluk Empire. This region becomes known as Ottoman Palestine. Fast forward to 1882, we now look at the Aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew word meaning ascent. In practice, it refers to Jewish migration to the land of Israel, which is Palestine. Mm -hmm. When people talk about Aliyah, oftentimes they are specifically referring to the time period from 1882 to 1914. There were two migrant waves from all over the world, and this is specifically called the Zionist Aliyah. A lot of different reasons why Jewish people were immigrating to Palestine at this point. Some were like very legitimate. Jewish people are getting persecuted across the world. But there is kind of an intent to get them in Palestine to start the groundwork for creating the ethno state. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but like obviously as you can imagine, when the Holocaust happened, a shit ton of Jews were fleeing Germany. Yeah. A lot of them end up in Palestine. Yeah. So it's not I think sometimes people can confuse the idea that, like, oh, all the Jews who went to Palestine came from Nazi Germany. No. There was already work done ahead of time to get them there. And not always, like, with an intent. Sometimes they just ended up there. But a significant amount of the migration happened with Nazi Germany. Yeah. And not to mention the folks who were there in Palestine mm -hmm. did end up opening up yeah. 
a lot of land to them because they knew they were persecuted. Yeah, yeah. Right? So yeah. Cuz at that point it's like not clear that like oh this is like a colonial takeover. Yeah, when 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 this ha- when this was happening, don't forget that the United States literally turned around boats full of Jewish immigrants mm. in and Staten Island, New York. We'll, turned them around willingly, sent them back into the arms of We'll get to those numbers too. Okay, yeah. 1917. France and the UK with some oversight from Russia and Italy Sign what is called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And keep in mind, 1917 is like the end of World War One. Yeah. This breaks up Ottoman Palestine between each of these countries. And this was a secret agreement yeah. made before Ottoman Empire was like formally split up. Basically, all the other countries who were going to win World War One got together ahead of time and said, look, we know the Ottoman Empire is going to fall. Let's agree about who gets what yeah. ahead of time. And so the British government at the same time makes the Balfour Declaration which was alluded to earlier in the intro clip. If you don't know, the guy who spoke at the very beginning was Kwame Ture. The Balfour Declaration is basically where the British government publicly supports the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Now, at the same time, the UK did get what like the land of Palestine as like a colony, and that was called the Mandate for Palestine. Basically, colony. Yeah, literally calling. <laughs> 1920, the League of Nations mandates that Palestine and Transjordan, which is modern-day Jordan, fall under British administration. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the Jewish population of Palestine is about 6%. And they are given a representative body at the League of Nations, but not the Arabs living yeah, there. not the Palestinians. Yeah, which... And they're, they're Jewish Palestinians who was already there. Yeah. You know what I mean? These are the people that came over and migrated mm-hmm. and settled down. If you're picking up anything, please pick up the fact that this is a concentrated effort to yes. start something. Yes. This, this isn't like, oh, hey, project. this isn't like, hey, Palestine, please take these mm-hmm. refugees. Mm-hmm. Take a number of refugees each year like they do now from Syria and everyone. Yeah. United States has to take 20,000. Germany takes 50, whatever. They're, this is a concentrated effort to start a state. Yes. I remember, go back to that quote that Theodore Herzl made that. They would need the cooperation of friendly governments. They like this so, was done with intent. Yeah. Because also, like, who has actual power? A bunch of Jewish migrants or the UK and eventually the US. Yeah. The the fucking two superpowers. Yes. Yeah. They're the ones who time. actually make this happen. Yeah. And so now we're gonna get into the period leading up to 1936 and 1939, which are the Arab revolts. And now I, this is where we're gonna make our little detour because I think here we can learn a lot about what was happening in Israel and Palestine at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to... This is all coming from an article, a piece written by Ghassan Kanafni, who is a Palestinian author, and this was written in 1972. Between 1933 and 1935, 150,000 Jews immigrated to Palestine. At this point, 443,000 Jews in total were in Palestine. So that's about 29.6% of the population. With the Holocaust, as it was happening... The annual number of Jews who were moving to Palestine increased from 7,000 to 43,000. Yeah. So the Holocaust, like, greatly increased the number of Jews who were moving to Palestine. And so going back to what Cher said earlier about how the U.S. was turning away boats and boats of people fleeing Nazi Germany. Sending them back to the chambers. Let's give some hard numbers to this, okay? Please do. (sighs) The estimate is that about two and a half million Jews fled Nazi persecution. Mm -hmm. Let's divvy up and see where they went. Britain accepted about 1.9% of them. Right. The U.S. accepted 6.6% of them. Mm -hmm. The USSR, Soviet Union, 
take a guess, share. How many percentage wise of that two and a half million, how many did they accept? Knowing that the US took in about six and a half percent and the UK took in about two percent. I kind of want to give them a little bit more than that. Ten percent? Seventy five point two percent. Holy shit. Yeah. Russia really came in. And keep in mind, if y'all don't know, Russia did like most of the fighting against yeah, Nazi did, Germany. Was, yeah, they did. Wasn't Russia the one who really like Basically. closed up the yes. gap and that's when Yes. Hitler was like, all right, I'm going to let yeah. myself go. It's mostly because of communists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Meanwhile, 8.5% of those, of that 2.5 million, went to Palestine. Is 8.5% a lot less than what Russia got? Of course. Yes. Russia's also much bigger than Palestine. Way bigger. More powerful. The U.S. is much bigger than Palestine. More it has powerful. way more resources. And they only took in 6.6%. Yeah. There was a concerted effort to get a lot of Jews there. Caveat, there was also a concerted effort after the Holocaust, after Nazi Germany fell. They, the United States took in Nazi generals and oh, relocate. Yeah. I mean, this is a completely side topic, but yes. very important point. Like, mm-hmm. listen, United States is not a moral agent of the objective morality and change. Right? We, we could do a whole other episode. <laughs> we on this, could. But the, the United States basically took in side point Nazis to use them as like CIA and intelligence and army assets for their other imperial. Yeah, projects. down Latin America, making yes. sure the communists don't get close. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Whatever. Side point. So let's talk about some of these immigrants who got there. Most of the immigration was funded by the British government because the British government was in charge of the British mandate for Palestine. That's right. what it was called at that point. Here's a quote from the article. Fuck the British, man. Fuck the British. Honestly, the British are way more involved in this than you. Well, were. You know they killed... Sorry sorry to cut you off. This is jumping in my mind. When they ruled India, you know they killed over like... One, I, I, it was over a billion Indians. Yeah. Like, with a B. There's still too many Indians. From the article. In addition, Jewish capital controlled 90% of the concessions granted by the British mandatory government and provided labor for 2,619 workers. So basically, most of the funds that the colonial government, the British government, would send to colonial Palestine ended up going to, like, the Jewish sectors. Yeah. And this was done, again, with purpose. What was a stat where it was like... Palestinians made up 80% of the population, but the the business owners were how much? So, for example, in 1935, Jews controlled 872 of a total of 1,212 industrial firms in Palestine, and they employed 13,678 workers, while the rest were Palestinian Arab-controlled and employed about 4,000 workers. Yeah. Jewish investment totaled about 4 million Palestinian lira, compared to 700,000 Palestinian lira. Yeah. So there's way more like cap, way more capital associated with like the Jewish population, the Arab population. That was an intentional diversion of resources from the British government to yeah. make sure like we need to amass like a strong capitalist Foothold. class against the labor class. Yeah. A significant number of the initial migrants to Palestine, the Jewish migrants, I should say, were workers, were laborers, people mm-hmm. who could till the land and farmland and work on the land. After the fact. You would get your landlords. Yeah. You would get your business magnates. You mm-hmm. would get all the capitalist class. Should be also said, like, there was a weird contradiction between, like, Jewish communists who were working with uh, the Palestinian Communist Party. Like, there were Jewish workers who were trying to side with Palestinians because, mm-hmm. like, oh, we have, like, worker solidarity. 
one, I don't think they really realized that, like, you being there is kind of, like, a problem in of itself. Right. But, like, the Zionists were killing Jewish workers. Because yeah. Jewish workers were, like, trying to undercut the whole project. Like, no, no, no. No worker solidarity. No nothing. So, again, from the article. It was clear that the Arab proletariat, and if you don't know, proletariat is, like, a fancy word for a worker, had fallen victim to British colonialism and Jewish capital. The former bearing the primary responsibility. This was done with intent because in order to make this whole project work you need to weaken the working class arabs Mm -hmm. and we can use theodore herzl's own text as a way to understand that private land in areas allocated to us must be seized from its owners poor inhabitants are to be quickly evacuated across the border after having secured for them jobs in the countries of their destination they are to be denied employment in our country. As for large property owners, they will ultimately join us. Basically, what Herzl was saying is like, make the situation so fucking bad for like the, the, workers, the factory worker, yeah. like the regular worker. They got nowhere else to go. They can't do anything. But don't worry about like the upper class Palestinians because we can like get them on our side. Class solidarity. Class solidarity. Because like, we're rich. They're, They're rich. rich. Who cares if you're also Arab? Come on our side. Yeah. Even if they don't like the idea, it's like, they're going to have to follow where the money goes. Yeah. The Histatrut. Histatrut is like the uh, the Israeli union for workers that still exists at this time. Summed up its policy by declaring that to allow Arabs to penetrate the Jewish labor market meant that the influx of Jewish capital would be employed to service Arab development, which is contrary to Zionist objectives. Furthermore, the employment of Arabs in Jewish industries would lead to a class division in Palestine along racial lines. Capitalist Jews employing Arab workers, should this be permitted, we would have introduced into Palestine the conditions that had led to the emergence of anti-Semitism. Again, he's really harboring this idea that like you have to really undercut the Arab worker. Yeah, because the- if any other ethnicity or religion mm-hmm. is there yeah room for anti-semitism jewish capitalists jewish bosses jewish managers should hire only jewish workers yeah and part of this is like again it's like this whole paranoia about like everybody's just secretly anti-semitic that like if, if like jews hire arabs arabs are gonna start hating jews yeah which is like well i think the, the ethnic cleansing would also do that yeah i don't know it's, it's <laughs> taking, taking their land killing their grandparents might help in that uh, department yeah. During and again, let's talk about that class that class solidarity bullshit. During the uprisings of 1929 and 1933, many small Palestinian Arab peasants sold their lands to big landlords in order to buy arms to resist the Zionist invasion and the British mandate. So basically, poor Palestinians, whatever little land that they had, sell it to rich Palestinians. Like, look, look, look I just need money. I need guns because so we, we're yeah. we're trying to get these guys out of our country because we see what's happening. Yeah, rich Arabs take that money. Oh, they take the land, not the money. Yeah. They, they get money. Who do, who do you think they sell the land to? The, Jew, the Jewish migrants. Yeah. And so now we get to the actual 1936 revolt. This is often credited with this guy, Iz al-Din al-Qasim. He was Syrian. Mm-hmm. He was a Syrian freedom fighter in, I think, he fought in Syria and he fought elsewhere. He, he, was, he was a very religious man. He was a sheikh. Damn. And he was very much um, practiced... Uh, pan-arab nationalism like we are all arab doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're lebanese if you're palestinian if i'm syrian jordanian we're all arab so he and this was a common thing a lot of arabs saw what was happening in palestine still happens today and there is some sense of solidarity he 
got a ragtag group of people and was fighting in Israel here and there. Eventually, he died. He got mm-hmm. killed by Israeli army. And that caused a wave of revolts and riots. In April 1936, there was a general labor strike. Every, a lot of Palestinian workers, not every single one, said, we're not working. Y'all can't do shit if, you, if we don't work because we're still like the mass of the labor force here. Yeah. Still the majority. Still the majority. And so upper class Arabs were like, uh, we got to pick a side. Like, they got guns and they're angry. There's more Arabs, but also there's more money there's with, like, money the Jew- that way. who do you go with? Eventually, they kind of sided with, like, the, uh, the working class Arabs, but, like, yeah. it was a little bit too late at that point. Yeah. Going into this idea that, like, upper class Palestinians didn't have, like, solidarity, this is the fundamental problem with the Palestinian revolution and what happened in the lead up to the creation of Israel is that like there was such a disconnect from the bourgeoisie of the Palestinian Arabs and the working class that there was no representation. Right. That there was no leadership. So inevitably, when we get to the Nakba and Israel establishes itself, like there was nobody really to fight. I, I don't want to say that. People were fighting back. That's the whole point of this this segment. But it was not like a very well orchestrated, well regulated. It wasn't well, a fully organized on one side yeah, kind of thing. It was doomed to failure because there wasn't. It was like, already there were there were discrepancies within yeah the the side that was supposed to be together. Exactly, Palestinians have always been fighting. Palestinians have had to fight for their existence for the better half of a century now. Yeah. It's just like when you're dealing with like a colonial imperialism force. You, you need to UK yeah, USA. You need to be like organized, but that's also like it's easy for us. In a well-ventilated room, <laughs> yeah. in Puma sweats and Nike, <laughs> to be saying this shit on like laptops. Yeah, we're not on the ground struggling. No, not at all. So these revolts, the Arab-Palestinian revolts, were happening from 1936 to 1939, and around the same time, in 1937 specifically, we had the Peel Report. It was a British report that determined that the current borders established by the Mandate for Palestine weren't going to work. So we need to read, okay, we need to like create a border for an Israel and Palestine. So the report proposed, okay, we'll have an Arab state and we'll have a Jewish state and there'll be a neutral zone for holy sites. That was a report. That was like a proposal. Didn't really go anywhere first. Then 1947, we have the proper United Nations General Assembly partition plan. The UN called for splitting Palestine into a separate... Arab and Jewish state. 56% of the land would go to Jews, which already is like, why the fuck? Yeah. 44% for the Palestinians. And then Jerusalem would kind of be like an intermediate Neutral, zone. Yeah. International zone. Here's the thing. Before anything could go with that, we get to the Nakba. And Nakba translates to catastrophe. Yeah. Now, that's what Palestinians and Arabs call it. Nakba. Yeah. Catastrophe. What do, uh, what do Israelis call it? It's the war for independence. Jesus Christ. This is like their independence day. Because for Israel, this is when they establish the state. Yeah. This is when they sign the Declaration of Independence and become we a are full. We are Israel. We are Israel. But for Arabs, they lost so much. So much land. So much land. I mean, this 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 goes... Recent memory, right? Mm-hmm. Sheikh Jahara. We were up in arms for it because they were taking just Sheikh Jarrah, which was like a small part of the city and a neighborhood that they were taking over. When the Nakba started, they took over massive land. Like if you look at modern day Palestine right now, Israel is majority of it. The map is like all fucky looking. Yeah. It'll make sense. 
Okay, so continuing with the timeline, we're talking about Plan Dale. What Dalet? I don't really know. D A L E T. This was the main plan of the Haganah. The Haganah was the paramilitary, the Jewish population before Israel was properly established, kind of like a predecessor to the IDF. It was a concentrated effort to expel Palestinians from their own homes so that Jewish people could settle. By the end of the war, 300,000 Palestinians had to leave their homeland. Yeah. And there isn't an exact figure for Arab deaths because, like, it's hard to who's track fucking, that. Yeah, who's, who's, who's keeping track, track of that? But the number is generally floated somewhere between, like, 15,000 to 20,000. I think that's undervaluing it's it. It's probably undervaluing it. And also, should be said, this was not just during the Nakba, like evictions and mass killings were happening for a long time. Like, that should be understood. Like, this is constantly happening, but Plan Dalai was a specific, hyper-concentrated incident. I wish incident y'all could see my face because I'm, like, grimacing and, like, shaking my head like, yeah. yeah. The, when when the British Empire touched Palestine, mm-hmm. that's that's when the killing started. Yeah. It's, it's just, come on. We're talking about the fucking <laughs> British here. Okay, in 1948, the Arab League, which comprises of Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, declare war on Israel following the Nakba. Uh, they lose. They lose real bad. And then after the fact, 400,000 Palestinian refugees have to find refuge in these states. Mm-hmm. From this point on, Egypt is the effective administrative body of Gaza, while Jordan oversees the West Bank. And then Gaza and the West Bank make up about 22% of what was the Palestinian territory. The rest is just Israeli now. Mm-hmm. In 56, we come to the Suez Canal crisis. So this is kind of international, but it's very important to what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was president of Egypt, pan-Arab socialist, he nationalized the Suez Canal. Basically, the British controlled the canal for, like, you know, exporting and importing. It's in, obviously, in, like, Egyptian territory. Right. And so Egypt's like, no, 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 this should not be owned by a private company. This is ours. Yeah. We own this. And then France and Great Britain, of course, were like, no, no, fuck you. We're going to declare war. Yeah. And over, so, over. Okay, over. Okay. Well, it's a pretty big deal. No, I know it is. Because, yeah. like, it, that that's, again, goes to geopolitics, right? Yeah. It's like the geography of places. That's why they want such foot, strong footholds in that region. Y'all remember that ship that got stuck earlier this year? Yeah. That was in the Suez Canal. The Green Greenland ever, Evergreen. Evergreen. Evergreen, Evergreen yes. yeah. I, I've read, I think, the numbers about, like, Oh, it's like ten percent or twenty percent of all world trade was halted. Was halt, halted. Yeah, it was so crazy. much of it goes to the Suez Canal. Billions of dollars. <laughs> and so remember, the West wants a reliable ally in the Middle East, and Zionists understand that so much of their power is contingent on the West. All of their power. All the well, yeah, actually, yeah, all of their power really. So they come through and coordinate with France and the UK to attack the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt is unable to fight like both Israel and then the France and UK coalition. And then the UN has to get in there to be like, yo, okay, this is too much. This is too much. But Israel does this to show that we are a reliable ally for your ge- geopolitical interests. Right. We'll fight against the Arabs with you. We are your bitches. We are your, uh, yeah, we're your bitches. In 1964, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, is established in Jordan. Their goal is to liberate Palestine through armed struggle. June 5th through 10th, it's 1967, we get the Six-Day War. Nasser kicks the UN force. Remember, Gamal Abdel Nasser, president of Egypt. He kicks that peacekeeping UN force out of the Suez because they were just kind of doing what the British and France wanted anyways. So it was like, get the fuck out of here. And then Israel launches preemptive airstrikes on Egyptian airfields, which completely destroys their air force. And then they quickly transition into a ground assault. Egypt, Syria, and Jordan try to fight back as a joint coalition. They get their ass handed to them. Israel keeps 
fucking toppling them. It's really. I mean, yeah, they're they're backed by billions of dollars yeah. at this point. And now we're going to fast forward to 1978, the Camp David Accords. It's a secret meeting at Camp David, which is in Maryland, so home state, <laughs> between Egyptian Shit. President Anwar Sadat, keep in mind, Abdullah Abdel Nasser died at this point, yeah. and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Menachem. Menachem. Overseen by President Carter, Jimmy Carter. Egypt makes peace with and officially recognizes the state of Israel. And this is pretty significant because at this point, Egypt was considered the strongest Arab state to kind of contest Israel. Yeah, even though they get, they were getting fucked. And they were getting fucked. And it was like, okay. But they were still holding on. They were still holding on. And so they were the only, Egypt was the only one strong enough to leverage support for Palestinians. And here's the worst part, though. This is a meeting between America, Egypt, and Israel, fundamentally about Palestinian territory. Not and a single fucking Palestinian was there to represent them. And that that's the story of Palestine, right? Yeah. Like, take it back to Sky Pico. It was a fucking secret agreement. Yeah. No one, no one from the... It is kind of like, um, don't want to change the topic, but it's kind of like India and Pakistan with Kashmir. It's like, mm-hmm. Pakistan wants Kashmir. India wants Kashmir. Yeah. What the fuck does Kashmir want? Yeah, nobody cares. No, no. This is, this Kashmir is very com- not even on the table. Yeah, this is, very the com- table. this is a very common thing constantly. And so 1987, we get to the first Antifada. So the Lebanon War had previously happened. It was a disastrous casualty for many Arabs, many Palestinians. But the Palestinians obviously had been facing brutality and oppression for decades. 1987, they protest and they ride on a mass level. It gets to the point, it gets so bad that... In 1993, the Oslo Accords happen. It's an agreement between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Organization, Remember, PLO. Yeah. Yasser Arafat, who's a leader of the PLO, recognizes the state of Israel. And the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, who knows, recognizes PLO as a representative body of Palestine. Again, this is done to like appease the the for the antifada yeah because it got so out of hand for israel it's like all right we'll give some concessions yeah here are the key points from the oslo accords there's the establishment of the palestinian national authority known as a pa it's an interim government that is theoretically supposed to give palestinians some democratic process right their funding and legitimacy come from israel though so it's like how much agency how, how are you actually representative of the palestinian people it's it's your parents <laughs> and they're giving you um, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you call allowance? it? Allowance. Allowance. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I can do whatever I want with this allowance. And then your parent just steps in and is like, no, you know, you can't. You're going to, you're, you you're only allowed that. to spend it on this, this, yeah, this. Yeah. That's literally what it is. I'm going to buy beer. No, you're, no not. you're not. I'm going to buy guns to fight you, dad. No, the fuck you're not. No, the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. And then point two, Gaza and the West Bank are split into three areas. It's areas A, B, and C. A and B are controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Area C is fully controlled by Israel. If we had a map... You could see A and B combined are way less than Area C. Remember, Area C is what Israel has. Yeah. So basically, Israel gets way more land out of this yeah. than the PA. And then the PA is not really that much of a representative body to begin with. Mm-mm. I want to point to a piece written by Yara Shofani. She is a writer. She wrote for the Institute for Palestine Studies. I'm going to give a brief summary of it. It's not super long, 
But basically, on October 19th, Benny Gatz, the Israeli defense minister, designated six Palestinian human rights groups as terror organizations. And these groups do really good work. Yeah. They provide on-the-ground reporting on what's happening in Palestine, give you video, give you audio, give you actual interviews. They're like an actual source of news about what's happening there, and they're documenting the war crimes, everything that's happening. Some of these groups are the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Al-Haq, Defense for Children International, Palestine, Union of Agricultural Work Committees, Bissan Center for Research and Development, and Union of Palestinian Women Committees. Wow. Union of Agricultural Those Workers. evil motherfuckers. Children Hospital Funds. Ter- that's exactly what I'm fucking talking about, mm-hmm. right? Like, they label them terrorist organizations to demonize them. Yeah. Cut their funding. Cut, like, they're under trying to, literally trying to take the knees out of them. And... Here, here's the thing. This just happened, correct? This was, yeah, this was uh, October 19th. Recent, o- October 19th, they declared them. We, uh, earlier in the episode, we mentioned how, you know, we talked about, we, we made a Palestine and Israel um, episode way long ago when this was all in the news. Yes. I think you would agree with this, that this year specifically, there did seem to be a slight shift in media reporting. It, it was like marginally better than it usually is. Because... When Israel launched those attacks into Sheikh Jarrah and just all across Gaza Strip and uh, Golan Heights, right? There was not much wiggle room that take that they could say. That, uh, social media to the point where I, I, I on Palestine, which is a great like follow I on Palestine. Yeah, they also go fund them as well. They did a lot of reporting on the ground that just broadcasted to the world and they continue to do so they continue to do so that wasn't done by any of the major networks that is you know largely funded by obviously israeli money and united states money so there was no censorship they weren't they they did not have control over what was going out yeah but now they're trying to regain control by labeling these six organizations that do great work in palestine as terrorist organizations yeah the U.S. and I, I believe also the U.K. did kind of look into some of these designations because the way Israel's making this work is that, oh, these six groups are tied to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a political party that's already been designated a terror organization. Right. So they're saying these six groups are tied to this group, which is already a terror organization. Therefore, these six groups are also a terror organization. They provided absolutely no evidence that there was a case. I think The Intercept got leaked reports and documents that show like no there was no actual evidence to make these claims to corroborate these claims but here's the problem and so i'm going to quote from yara's piece another possible result of this designations directly threatens these organizations access to finances Hmm. private banking institutions have abstract processes around de-risking because companies don't want to invest in risky brands. Right. Y'all kind of know that generally. You can't right? get a loan if you got bad credit. Exactly. Try being labeled a terrorist. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this process is highly politicized with a 2021 report by the Charity and Security Network highlighting the role of banks in criminalizing Palestinian civil society organizations through closing their accounts. 49 of the 50 largest banks in the world use the same world check risk intelligence record which lists approximately 2.7 million names and organizations with 93,000 designated as terrorists. Sheesh. So basically, the banks like have a database and they look for any kind of association for whoever's like investing or trying to make a withdrawal and see, like, okay, what's like the credibility here? Right. Is there like a risk associated with being associated with this? If, if there's even like a loose association 
we're not going to give you finances. Yes. So these organizations, if they have no funding, they can't do shit. Yeah. It kind of leads us to, I think people generally know this term, BDS. Yes. Boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. Mm-hmm. The general idea is that we can fight back against Israel. Because as Cher pointed out, so much of like what makes... And it's not unique to Israel. What makes any group work is fundamentally about resources, money. Mm-hmm. We can cut off their access to money and weaken them. Then that makes them, even if you don't topple them, that makes them way more amenable to like having to negotiate. Yeah. Basic premise of the BDS movement is that we stop buying and investing and supporting Israeli business. And so you see that with, for example... Cyber hummus is trash anyways. Cyber hummus is... Okay. <laughs> Sabra hummus is the worst thing that Israel has done. Yeah. Uh, I don't care about what, anything else. <laughs> so the BDS movement has been something that has often um, been criminalized mm-hmm. or they found ways to make it um, political speech that can get you fired. Yeah. That can get you like barred from a lot of like opportunities in the By world. By the way, Sherrier and Saad are our alias names. That is not our real names. Those are not our real names. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Do not look me up. <laughs> we are fake. This is fake personality. Fake personality. You guys don't actually know our real names. Yeah, we don't believe. To I, I actually, guys I work for the IDF. <laughs> this is all a plot. This is all a psyop. <laughs> oh god! I shot a Palestinian boy the other day. You know what? I'm going to use this as an opportunity to rag on colleges. Oh yeah. To rag on academia. To rag on universities. Let's get it. I went to college. Jared went to college. Go to college. Get a get your degree. Get a job. It, yeah. It's it's important and all that stuff. Do not think that getting a degree or going to college makes you a better person. Mm-hmm. Makes you a smarter person. No, no, no. You're just making your resume better, and that's yeah. fine. That's good. You got get your bread. It's the name of the game. Name of the game. Colleges are insanely hostile to being pro Palestinian. Yeah, to the point where you will get you fired. can get fired. One man, Norman Finkelstein. I have his book somewhere in my room. It's a very good book. It's called Gaza, uh, An Inquisition of Martyrdom. Yeah, Norm- Norman Finkelstein is, if you don't know him, he is a historian. Oh, I have it right here. And profess- he was a professor for a very long time mm-hmm. at um, Harvard. No, not, no. not Harvard. NYU, uh, Rutgers, DePaul University. I don't think where was he not? Where was he denied tenure? DePaul is where... DePaul? Yeah. Okay. He was denied tenure at DePaul. Because he is... And here's the thing. This this is a Jewish man, by the way. He is a Jewish man. His parents were, uh, I believe, Holocaust survivors. Yes. Please look him up and look at some of the points that he makes. The the book that I read from him, and he has several other books, is Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom. Basically breaks down so many of the international court cases and UN court cases and the arguments made in defense of Israel and breaks them down like, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, yeah. this is bullshit, this is bullshit. He's been a staunch advocate for the Palestinian people. Yeah, and he's always pointed out the discrepancies between how the media, colleges, education is going against Palestine and is so pro-Israel that this man has been barred from either getting a job after all these other universities that he tried mm-hmm. at, right? You can't really get a job in no. education anymore. And it's not it's, a testament to his... He's a very talented and smart man. Yes, it's just the fact that he's going against the grain of what they yeah. want to teach. It's about, incredibly political. Yeah. My thing, my takeaway from what I want you guys to take is when someone's being silenced, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't that bullshit that we talked about last time about like influencers like speak before it's illegal or some Sorry. shit. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is the legit This shit. is actual this cancel is legit. culture, so yeah. to speak. 
Yeah, they, they argue about cancel culture snowflakes all the time, but they're really the ones doing it. I got a pressing question. Is being anti-Zionist being anti-Jewish? No. Oh, okay. That's what the media and that's what Zionists... I mean, we talked about it, right? The Herzl's Jewish question. Yeah. That's what they want us to think to strengthen their opinion or their cause, yeah. right? Because any kind of criticism, they they, they harp on, this is anti-Semitism. You're, you're going against my religion and this and that. There are two... These two things are extremely different, in my opinion. Someone who has, you know read more than a normal person about certain topics around this and just history in general. We just took an hour basically explaining the state of Israel as it is Zionism at its core, mm-hmm. meaning that it is they want to create a state just for Jewish folk. Yes. No other ethnicity, no other religion in there, right? Being anti-Zionist does not mean we're anti-Jewish. Yes. You know? There are Jewish... We just mentioned one. Norman Fink... Norman Finkelstein. (laughs) He's anti-Zionism. Is he fucking anti-Jewish? No, he's Jewish himself. Yeah. Me being anti-Saudi Arabia, is that me being anti-Muslim? No. I I don't understand why people tried to conflate the two because I don't understand it. I think it's a combination of one... You honestly believe that shit. You're brainwashed. Two, it's cynical. I think a lot of people who levy that argument extremely cynical don't believe it, but they know it's like, look, my bread is buttered. I, I need to be pro-Israeli. I'm going to make this claim. Mm. I think it's also an element of because we do kind of live in, that, especially now in an era where there's like hypersensitivity towards being like, oh, I don't want to be a bigot. I think this is very common with like, especially fucking liberals. A lot of them like want to be pro-Palestinian because they're like, oh yeah, like I, I clearly can see what's happening here. But then they don't want to say anything because like, oh, but what if that's like an anti-Semitic trope? Right. Because it's all it's all about like the specifics of language and if it can be interpreted in an uncharitable way. Because then, it's used so often. Yeah. Right? I mean, clear example, Ilhan Omar, all about the Benjamins. She was specifically talking about the APEC lobby, mm-hmm. which literally... Yeah. Definitely, it's a <laughs> lobby. They raise money and throw money and weight behind certain yeah. causes and certain things. And the APEC lobby, for you to, who, who don't know, is Israel's largest lobby yeah. in the United States. And they are powerful. Yeah. So for her to be like, oh, by the way, Israel's power in America comes from the lobby, that's not anti-Semitic. I mean, I think I would say she's like wrong in that APAC, we don't support Israel because of APAC. APAC exists as a money laundering institution because we support Israel. Yeah. It, like that's the deep She could have gone that, it that way. Yeah. But the fact that she said the truth about it, I mean, we can say that about the, the Koch brothers, right? It's yeah. like, oh, it's all about the Benjamins. It's like, all right, is that... No, those motherfuckers have a hand in everyone's pocket. Let me just take this first paragraph that I, one of the first paragraphs I wrote in my article to basically sum up the Zionism versus anti-Semitism argument. Zionism is an ideology and movement that seeks the creation and subsequent maintenance of a Jewish state. Zionism and Judaism aren't mutually inclusive. One is explicitly political in its goals. The other is a matter of faith and spirituality that comes in many different iterations. You can be Jewish without being a Zionist, and you can be a Zionist without being Jewish. In fact, anti-Semites like Nazis, white supremacists of like today, often become Zionists because they want to get rid of all the Jews to put them in a different state. 
I'd like to end it on an MLK quote. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And with that, we'll see you all next time. Keep reading. Keep doing the work. If you can, donate to money to um, Eyes on Palestine. Eye on Palestine. Mm-hmm. Follow Eye on Palestine. Follow uh, Grassroot Uckhoods. We've we followed and supported them. Yep. Find local organizations. I think it's more important to give to local Palestinian organizations who are trying to set up infrastructure for themselves to be self sufficient versus yes. like don't go through fucking international organizations to give money. It's yeah, it, 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 uh, it's yeah, and whatever. also for the Muslims out there, like, I'll keep this short. Yeah, it's not Ramzan. That's okay. You can still donate. Ooh. Keep donating, please. And I just want to give a quick shout out and reference to the pieces and, and things I pulled from uh, the clips I took from the beginning some of them are old Kwame Ture Nelson Mandela Abby Abby Martin is like the one who was doing the interview in Israel go follow right. her YouTube page I believe it's Empire Files and tell us her English you got a quote from Joe Biden and Nelson Mandela articles I pulled from again Yara Shofani from Norman Finkelstein's Gaza an inquest into a smarterdom Gassan Kanafni, the 1936 to 1939 revolt in Palestine, as well as Rashid Khalid's The Hundred Years War in Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance. I think that's pretty much all the sources we got there. Just wanted to give due credit where it's due. Keep reading, do, keep doing the work. We'll catch you all next time. See ya.